Let's take your Bible this evening and go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4 tonight. You just joined us. Welcome to our midweek service. And I'd like to ask you to take a moment to, uh, to pull down the, uh, the notes page so you can follow our notes tonight. You want to follow the notes because there's a lot of, lot of good Bible study things we're doing. First Corinthians 4. Why don't you read out loud while I'm, I'm reading from the Scripture here. You read out loud at home the Scriptures tonight. First Corinthians 4, verses 1 to 5. Let a man so account of us as of the ministers of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. But with me... It is a very small thing that I should be judged of you or of man's judgment. Yea, I judge not my own self, for I know nothing by myself. Yet am I not hereby justified, but he that judges me is the Lord. Therefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord come, who both will bring to light the hidden things of darkness and will make manifest the counsels of the hearts, and then shall every man have praise of God. Our passage tonight is a continuation of where we left off in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 15. And actually tonight we're going to study chapter 3, verse 16, to chapter 4, verse 5, so we may properly understand the context and the application tonight. And as we look at this, we're going to see some very practical lessons that will help us in growing God's church, that will help us in growing our faith, that will help us overcome insecurities and perhaps struggles with uh, areas of the flesh that we've not gotten victory over. And I promise you tonight, if you will submit yourself to God, if you'll submit yourself to his word this evening, these verses we study will do you a lot of good. In fact, I'll be honest with you, all the Bible will do you a lot of good, amen? But tonight it will do you a lot of good. And I draw your attention tonight for the title of the message. Paul said in verse, chapter 3, verse 22, actually verse 21, all things are yours. Now that's really the crux of the message tonight. All things are yours. Now if there's some pastor watching tonight, and I hope there are, we sometimes have pastors watching us, and you're struggling about how to build your church, whether or not to follow the progressives who are going to idea days and things of that nature. And I'm not against ideas. And I'm not against an idea day. But what I am against is when it's man's wisdom over God's wisdom. That's what this passage is all about. That's what it's all about. You see, we try to do things. We try to build our families. We try to build our churches. We try to build our lives 
by adding to the Word of God. Did you know in the book of Revelation it says to add nothing to the Word of God? And you're not to take anything from the Word of God? And if we would just be in submission to God's Word, you know what? You'd be a happy Christian. And you'd build a ministry that glorifies God because what's important is God first, then growth second. Not growth first and God second. And you can make yourself believe and live in deception, and he addressed that tonight. You can live in the self-deception that you're really doing it the right way, but the truth of the matter is we better have the right philosophy ministry because the Bible says that it's going to go through the fire at the judgment seat of Christ, and it's going to be determined whether the fire would determine was it gold, silver, precious stones, or wood, hay, stubble. Now, I'm talking to some members tonight as well. You listen to me this evening. I'm talking to some members tonight. You've dabbled over there. You're reading some of that stuff. You're following those blogs and the Facebook readings and some of those things. And you haven't said it, but you're a closet progressive. Because you're okay as long as I preach about it. But when, I, when, I, but when, I'm out, when you're not near me, you're, not, you're talking something else. You've got a different idea. And you're just wringing your hands, wondering one day, when, when Brother Fong is gone, I wonder if we can bring all these other ideas in here. Well, I've got news for you. That's going to be a long time coming. And I want you to understand tonight, it's important we understand as we come up the context of the judgment of our works, where Paul is at in all this tonight. I'll tell you what, this evening, I'm, I'm thankful for the study of 1 Corinthians because it is growing me, it's helping me understand some things I didn't understand before. I had a grasp of it, but I have a much greater grasp tonight. And it's going to help us tonight because I want you, and if you're a leader in the church I want you to understand, the context of 1 Corinthians is to grow a healthy church. A church that's not healthy is not holy. And a church that's healthy, you can almost say, you can say it's holy. And I can tell you this, a church that's holy is always healthy. And so we need to get on, on the same page with God. So tonight, I'm gonna, we're going to see an encouraging man. I'm not beating up on you tonight or anything like that. I just want you to stand my heart. I want you to see tonight, all is yours. All things are yours. Father, bless your word this evening. We thank you and love you in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Get your pens out. Get your notepad out. Start taking notes tonight. Okay. First of all, I want you to notice some, some by way of introduction very quickly. The Bible, the Bible is a word picture book, if I can say that. The Lord has chosen to use metaphors to give colorful descriptions to doctrines, commandments, and good practices. And Paul does the same thing. In verse 9, he uses the metaphor of a vineyard. If you lived during that time, almost everyone knew the value of growing grapes. It was an important part of their economy. I mean, soil, rain, fencing, inspection, pruning. Man, it was hard work. Harvesting, weather. And he uses the context of the vineyard. He uses the metaphor of a building in verse 9. And I want you to circle that tonight because that's where we're starting off this evening. What kind of a building? We're going to see tonight. He uses the metaphor of agriculture. When you study the Bible, you come under agricultural settings and terms. You need to take 
Uh, you need to do some study there to understand what's going on there because you have a greater appreciation of what's going on there. Um, he speaks of our Lord, our Lord here in, in this passage, as a wise master builder. And has the context of an expert architect and general contractor all rolled into one. He uses the metaphor of a foundation. And of course, we live in California, earthquake country, we understand that. He uses the metaphor of precious metals. That was how they traded in those days. Everybody understood the value associated with gold, silver, precious stone. They took more account of that on a day-to-day -day basis on the value, for valuation purposes than we do because that's how they traded. Um, he uses the metaphor of perishable materials. He talks about wood ain't stubble. He uses fire to describe it. And notice tonight, Paul uses some additional metaphors. In verses 16 to 17, he goes a little bit further in describing this building. He uses the metaphor of a temple to describe the church, describe you and me. He uses in chapter 4, verse 1, the metaphor, two metaphors which are talking about the same thing but two different definitions, of a servant and of a steward. We got a lot to learn. You got to understand these metaphors. Paul goes on by going further. Now you need to understand this if you want to understand 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. He uses some repeated phrases. Are you with me? Say amen tonight. Okay. In chapter 3, verse 16, he uses the phrase, know ye not? And that's like the old southern boy saying, don't you know? Don't you know? I mean, that's his way of basically saying, you should know that. I taught you that when I was there. And so whenever you see phrases like, and I brethren, he's introducing a whole new thought there or issue. And when he says, no, you're not, he's punctuating something he has just said, or he's punctuating something we better know. And so you might hear me after tonight saying sometimes, don't you know? Don't you know? No, you're not, because that's what he does there. Verse 18, he uses this phrase, uh, he uses this phrase in verse 9 and verse 18. He says, let no man, that's a command. Let no man, that is a command. Because Paul had to be, I'll be honest with you, he had to be pretty rough with the church at Corinth. Because they had, as we get into this, it gets pretty sticky here. And then verse 21 again, he says, therefore, let no man. And then verse 5 of chapter 4, he says, therefore, judge nothing. He uses these phrases to help us understand principles, commands, and instruction. Now remember, remember now, because if you're not careful, what I'm going to say, if you're not careful, as we start with verse 16, you're going to be lost thinking it's a new topic. It's not. Remember, Paul started with a new context in chapter 3, verse 1. And I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal. He's still talking to them as if they're carnal, because they are. And he defines their carnality as envying, strife, and divisions. James said, where there's envying and strife, there's confusion 
and every evil work. And by the way, as we get through chapter 4 and 5, we're going to see some of that. We're going to see where envying, strife, and confusion, envying, strife, and, 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 and contention leads to confusion and every evil work. And I want to underscore the word every evil work. It is a, it is a, it is a door opener. It opens the door to a lot of foul birds, F-O-U-L, a lot of foul birds that come inside the congregation. And what I want to tell you tonight as we look at this, everything we're looking at tonight, because it continues where we left off, is about planting and watering and doing the work of God. Planting, watering, and doing the work of God. If you haven't figured it out, God's called us to build his work. Amen. God has called us to build his work. Now, we're going to build his work spiritually, or we wind up building his work carnally. Did you hear what I said tonight? We either build the work, work of God spiritually, the way God meant it to be built, or it's going to be built carnally. A preacher I knew years ago named John Stormer, wrote a book. It's a good book. If you can find it, it's, it's, it's out of print now. But if you can find it used, those of you who are prospective parents ought to read it. And it's a title something like this, Building Children or Building Families God's Way. It's a good book. It's a little bit outdated in a few things, but, con but contextually, it's got some good concepts there that'll help you there. Now tonight, here's what we're doing. Last week, we saw the, we, we saw the future implications of doing God's work, how our work is going to be evaluated. Tonight, tonight we're bringing back to today. We're bringing back to right now. We are looking at the present implications of doing God's work. You want to write that down tonight. We're looking at the present implications of doing God's work. So if you're with me tonight, notice first of all in chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, we start off by looking at a sacred structure. Paul said in verse 9, ye are God's building. Ye are God's building. And that building in verse 16 and 17 is called a temple. Now in verse 9, he said, let every man take heed how he build it. Now there's a couple thoughts I want to give you about that. Number one, God wants everybody involved in building his work. That's a blessing. Our, our HBC Cares COVID-19, I'm thankful there have been a lot of hands already that have on the inside and on the outside that are helping this to get it together. Because without all those hands, it wouldn't be happening right now. And I, I want to thank God for Brother Irwin for helping oversee this part and just all different people and our church members who are, are helping me on this area. But, but I'm going to tell you tonight, he says, let every man take heed how he buildeth. And then in verse 16, he, he wants to awaken us. And so he says in verse 16, Know ye not that ye, and circle the word ye, the ye is talking about the church. He's talking about the local New Testament church at Corinth. In chapter 6, he uses the similar, the same phrase, know ye not, but in that context, when we get to chapter 6, verses 19, 20, he's talking to the individual Christians there. 
the members who make up the church. But here, he's referring to the corporate body as a whole. And he's saying here, Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwells in you. And so here's Paul doing this. Watch this. Don't you know? Don't you know? Don't you know already? I've told you this. I've taught you this. You are the temple of God. Now, to understand that this evening, let's consider, first of all, the concept or the, uh, the concept of a temple. The concept of a temple. In Corinth, they had an abundance of temples. The concept of a temple was very embedded in the heart and mind of every Corinthian. The temples of those days were pagan temples. Pagan temples dedicated to the worship of Greek deities. Zeus, Venus. Uh, we think of the uh, Aphrodite, which, you know, Paul talks about Aphrodite and uh, Diana and Mercury. And they had these temples dedicated to the worship of pagan gods. They also had temples, as we've been studying through the book of Revelation, they had temples dedicated to the worship of the emperor, Caesar. So temples were very familiar sites. They were everywhere. It was not unusual for, for a city to have one major temple, pagan temple, and several smaller ones. Temples were places where these deities were worshipped. Food was offered to these idols. Their idols there. They would bring gifts. They would bring sacrifices. They would make their prayers. And they'd offer food to these idols. So some of you who are of Chinese background, where your families, you may have family members who do ancestor worship. That goes back many years before that. That ancestor worship and that kind of stuff has been around with many cultures. These temples were places where at daytime, they would, did the, they would do these forms of worship. And at nighttime, the temples were open. And believe it or not, they had 24-7 temples, if you can believe that. That's why I'm going to tell you tonight, it's a biblical thing to have, have church all the time. Amen. These temples were outlets for sexual immorality, which was running rampant. Now, we get to 1 Corinthians 6. Some things you thought the Bible doesn't talk about, I'm going to tell you tonight, it is in 1 Corinthians 6. It is in 1 Corinthians 6. And Paul, when he wrote 1 Corinthians 6, he's drawing from the people who got converted in Corinth out of that kind of lifestyle. And he's also referring, as he's writing this, when he's talking about temples here, he's writing about a loose, immoral lifestyle there in Corinth. Because remember, it was the vanity fair of the world. And I'm going to just say this tonight. These temples, listen to me tonight, these temples were havens, they were hideouts for prostitution, pedophile activity, and unnatural behavior. Priestesses, they had women priestesses, if you can imagine that, 
involved with sacrifice and things. In the evenings, they made their money by selling their bodies. In many cases, the priests and the attendants in those temple worship took advantage of their position against minors and women who were vulnerable and preyed upon them. Sounds like today, doesn't it? Sounds like some churches today. And Paul had to elevate the concept of the temple, notice in verse 16, to God's concept of the temple. Now I want to remind you tonight, God does not dwell in temples made with hands. Amen. That's what, Paul, that's what Stephen preached. That's why they stoned him. Because the Jews worshipped their temple when they should have been worshiping God. And so Paul said, know you not that you're the temple of God and the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? You see, he's reminding the local New Testament church that as he said in Ephesians 2.22, that we are, a hab- we are built together for a habitation of God through the Spirit. You know what he's saying there, the concept is? When you get saved, the Holy Spirit indwells you. We've taught, we've taught on that many times. He lives inside of you. You ought to thank God tonight the Holy Spirit lives inside of you. He is your comforter. He's the one that comes alongside of you. He's your teacher from God. But you know it's a wonderful thing? A church is made of a saved, baptized individuals. Baptism is the gateway to the local New Testament church. Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians 12 a little bit there. You know it's a wonderful thing? It's realizing that if every church member, you listen to me tonight, every church member would comprehend the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in their lives, you wouldn't be too flippant with your words. And you would not be too flippant with your lifestyle. And you would guard your thoughts and guard your words and guard your attitude. And listen, when Paul says things, do all things without murmuring and complaining and grumbling. And he says you're to be a light of the world. And you're to be the salt of the earth. When you know the Holy Spirit of God is indwelling you. And you together with all the other brothers and sisters in Christ. In whom the Spirit of God dwells in. Can I tell you what tonight? We look at verse 16. He says don't you know. You are the temple of the Holy Ghost. You are the temple of God. And the Spirit of God dwells in you. He says you know what? It's a wonderful thing. That if we can realize who we are in Jesus Christ. That we're serving God. We should be serving God in the Spirit. We should be walking in the Spirit. We should be preaching in the Spirit. We should be praying in the Spirit. He's saying here, when you're, well, there's nothing more beautiful and wonderful than a church filled with God's people who know that the Spirit indwells them, and they're walking in the Spirit, and they're filled with the Spirit of God. A sacred temple. Listen, those pagan temples were filled with carnal things, food offered to their idols, Grotesque images describe depicting their idols because they had to have something that their eye could see and their hands could hold. But listen, God is a spirit and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Know you not? We're supposed to do church in the spirit. We're supposed to sing in the spirit. You know, I prayed that every living room Every kitchen, every office, wherever you're watching tonight. You sanctified that place 
that you're not distracted, that you're listening to God. Because I'm going to tell you what, tonight, this is still church. This is still church. And the Spirit of God lives inside of us. And if the Spirit of God lives inside of us, listen, we're gathered together. There's nothing better than knowing that the Spirit must be unified. Listen, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace is what Paul said. Tozer said the church can have light only as it is full of the Spirit. And it can be full only as the members that compose it are filled individually. Paul talks about a concept. Paul talks, gives us a caution. In verse 17, he says, now, he laid down the principle, verse 16. They knew that. He taught that. In a pagan temple, what made that up was the darkness of the, of the activities. In the holy temple of God, God's people are supposed to be living right and respecting the Holy Spirit who lives inside of us. So Paul says this, which you know is verse 17. If any man, and by the way, when he uses that, it already had happened. But he's just being kind. If any man defile, circle that word, if any man defile the spirit of, defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. For the temple of God is holy. Which temple you are. So first of all, the church is made up of individual members in who the spirit of God indwells them. An unsaved person is not a member of this church. The saved baptized members are members of this church. And when we come to church, we are the habitation. God is building up a habitation for himself. Well, what's he talking about defiling the temple of God? Well, man, we get to chapters 5, 6, 7, and on. It, it, he gets pretty graphic about that. The word defile means to corrupt, to ruin. And I'll define that in a moment. Throughout history, there have been men who have defiled the temple of God. My mind goes back to King Ahaz, Hezekiah's father. He went over to Assyria because he made an alliance with Assyria. And the Bible says he saw this altar there, this pagan altar. He made a mental image of what it was about. He walked around it. Saw the carvings, the drawings, probably got a piece of paper or papyri, papyri and started drawing it out. He went back out. He got back to Jerusalem. He said, hey, I want you to make an altar just like that. He saw something in the world. He copied and brought it back into the church. He saw it in the world and he brought it back into the church. And so he pushed the bronze altar aside where the sacrifices were made. And he put, he substituted this other altar, I call it an altered altar. He changed the sacrifice. And if you read the context of that about King Ahaz, he defiled the house of God. He was, it was dirty. In fact, Hezekiah says Hezekiah's men, the Levites, had to carry the filth out of the place. It took them two weeks to do that. He defiled it by bringing non-sanctioned things in there. I think about I think about in, 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 in Jewish history, and Daniel's prophecy talks about this, about Antiochus Epiphanes, who came and was a picture, a forerunner of the beast, of the Antichrist in, Paul, in, in Daniel's prophecies. And Antiochus Epiphanes, he went into the Jewish temple, 
And he brought in pigs and hogs. He slaughtered them on the altar and smeared and sloshed the blood of pigs all over the land. Now, if you know your Bible, pigs, hogs, and their blood was considered unclean. That was an abomination. And hence, we get the term, the abomination of desolation. You better hang with me on prophecy because I'll be preaching a little bit more about that as we get through Revelation. He brought the abomination of desolation into the temple of God. I mean, there have been men who have ruined and defiled and corrupted the temple of God. But what does that mean today? What does it mean that the temple of God is defiled? If any man defiled the temple of God, I want to give you some things tonight. And it's right here in our passage. Uh, when, when there's man worship instead of God worship. Look at chapter 3, verse 4. For while one saith, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not carnal? If you're worshiping a man, you're following a man like some preachers do, that, that is defiling the temple of God. And if you're leading the congregation to worship a man, that's wrong. There's one thing to honor a man, it's a different thing to worship a man. Uh, the work of the Lord, we, we defile the, uh, of the temple of God when the, when the work of the Lord is done in the flesh. Look at chapter 3, verse 15. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss. What's he talking about there? Well, if you, if you, if you built in the flesh, that means you built with wood, hay, and stubble. In chapters 5 and 6, Paul talks about some very, very grotesque and blatant sins. If those sins come into the house of God, and they do, it defiles the temple of God. When marriages, you read chapter 7, chapter 7 is an is a incredible chapter. In fact, there's probably four or five messages in chapter 7 that deals with marriage, divorce, remarriage, deals with singlehood, all these kind of things. Listen, when our marriages are dysfunctional, and unbiblical, and our marriages are out of the will of God. Because I'm going to tell you tonight, if your marriage is not following the biblical pattern, I'm going to tell you tonight, you are out of the will of God. If a wife can't submit to her husband, she's out of the will of God. If a husband can't love his wife as Christ loved the church, he's out of the will of God. Now, that you get, don't get mad at me, get mad at Paul. That's what Paul said. And so when marriages are like that, and we have, when we in our churches are made up of that, we defile the temple of God because it's chapter, why he wrote chapter 7, because it affected the church. When false doctrines and worldly methods enter the church, and we see that here in chapters later on, because the doctrine of the Holy Spirit got all messed up, it's defiled the temple of God. When the Spirit of God is quenched, it leads to the defiling of the temple of God. When Bible preaching is replaced, as we'll see tonight in the later, later, later part of chapter 3, when Bible preaching and Bible philosophy is replaced with man's wisdom, that defiles the temple of God. Notice what he says here. It means the temple's polluted and corrupted and ruined. And so he says here, if any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. Now that's pretty strong. Is that saying the sin problem in 1 Corinthians 5? The guy's going to be killed and lose his salvation? No. It's not saying he's going to lose his salvation. In fact, Paul just clarified that in a previous verse. He clarified that in, in verse 15. He's saying here, you're going to reap what you sow. If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. Now notice what God says here in verse 17. For the temple of God is what? Holy. Which temple you are. He says, the temple of God is to be holy. I mean, our premise for coming to church, if you want to find a verse that substantiates, we're supposed to be a holy church. There it is right there. The temple of God is holy. Our music is to be holy. Our preaching is to be holy. Our fellowship is to be holy. Our obedience is to be holy. 
our service to be holy, our winning of souls to be holy. But he says here, if any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. What does he mean by that? Well, the word destroy is the same word for defile. He's ruined. I believe there are two things very quickly. Number one, I believe the church, the testimony of the church is ruined. I believe, number two, and according to what Paul wrote over in the book of Revelation, and John wrote the book of Revelation, I believe that God will remove the candlestick testimony of that church out of the community. He said, if you don't repent, I will remove your candlestick. I think that's what he's talking about there. Tozer said this, the church that is not jealously protected by mighty intercession and sacrificial labors will before long become the abode of every evil bird and the hiding place for unsuspected corruption. The creeping wilderness will soon take over that church that trusts in its own strength and forgets to watch and pray. That's a good admonition. And so first of all, Paul, as they were talking, talking about building the work of God, he wants to remember what we are. He speaks about a sacred structure. Notice number two very quickly because it's, it's getting late. I want you to notice how Paul, going from verse 18, uh, 18 down to verse 23, he speaks to us and teaches us about a substantial sufficiency. Now Paul has laid the groundwork in verse 16 to 17 about the holiness of God's church. And in verses 18 to 23... He's now dealing, he's now dealing and meeting and, and, and butting heads. I mean, he's, he's like, he's, he's basically head on contending with a philosophical problem in the church. A philosophical problem in the church. Because, remember, this was a carnal church that was doing man worship, and uh, practicing what is called today hyper-grace. And um, there was envying, strife, divisions, and carnality. And Paul calls out tonight, in verse 16, this wrong philosophy. And he starts off that section, notice verse 18, by saying, Let no man deceive himself. Circle that, please. Underline it. Paul, in the, he, in the Greek language, is making a forward, aggressive attack on the sins of conceitedness and pride. Because, remember now, the Corinthians, the Corinthians worship the body, but they also worship the intellect. And remember chapter 1, Paul dealt with the wisdom factor right up front. Remember that? A few messages ago. And he's bringing it back right now. Because the wisdom factor he's dealing with here, there were some in the church. And I'm going to tell you tonight, it's in every church. It's in every church. There were some in the church who didn't bring worldly methods, but they brought worldly philosophy that was couched under strategic planning and business planning and financial terms. And I'm not against, don't get me wrong, I'm not against strategic planning. We do it. And I'm not against financial planning. We do it. And I'm not against being business-wise. I'm, I'm, I'm for that. Don't, 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 go, don't go away and say, well, pastor, just attack. I didn't attack. I'm talking about what's going on in Corinth. But you, you have to help me understand tonight what's going on here. And what he's saying here. There were those 
He had just addressed them in the previous verses. Are you building on gold, silver, precious stones, or wood, hay, and stubble? And those building wood, hay, and stubble were building upon, were trying to build and, and develop the church. They were trying to do church in the wisdom of man, not in the power of God. Because remember what he said? That your faith should not rest in the wisdom of man, but in what? The power of God. So he's dealing with this issue head on because he realized he had to build up to this point there. So he's dealing with, with, with a block of people in the church who are, who are filled with conceitedness. And he says in verse 18, are you there? If any man among you seemeth to be wise in this world, let him become a fool that he may be wise. You know what Paul just said there in a very polite way? If you think you're smart, you better, get, you better become a fool in order to get God's wisdom. He basically said, you're not wise. He said, if you think you're wise in everything you're doing and you're trying to attract a crowd and build a following based on your wisdom, let me tell you what tonight, the church, there's a lot of things churches need, but if we get rid of all the cameras, everything else we've got now, I'm going to tell you what, God will still build his church the way the Bible says. He still builds it on preaching. He still builds it on the word of God. He still builds it on the power of the Holy Spirit. You can take away all the fluff and all the money we spend on all these other things. Thank God for it because we're in a different day and age. But I want to tell you tonight, God was telling these people here, he says, if any man among you, in their war, he seemeth to be wise in this world. In other words, you think you're hot stuff. You think, you think you're so conceited that you think you've got it above everybody else. You think you've got to be the guru in the church concerning this matter here and the guru in the church concerning this matter there. And you've got to be the expert in the church concerning this matter here. You know, our churches get so complicated because as we grow our churches, we've got to have this and we've got to have that, and we compare ourselves to the world, and that's not, not a bad thing, but we've got to be very careful about that. We compare ourselves to the world, so we think we've got to have this thing and that thing and this thing, and by, before we know it, we've got so many safeguards, and we've got so many things on, we're so inhibited, we can't do the work of the ministry. Now, I've been on both sides. I understand this. I talk to pastors every week who are struggling about all these matters, and I have to caution these guys about what they're doing, and I'm going to caution us tonight. If any man among you seems to be wise, let him become a fool. And I'm going to talk about what that is in a minute, that he may become wise. Because you know what God said? You're not on the same page with me. That's what God said. That's what God said, staff member. That's what God said, Mr. Deacon. That's what God said, Mr. Sunday school teacher. That's what God said, Mr. Member. If any, of you, if any man among you seems to be wise, let him become a fool that he may be wise. That's what God said. That's the word of God. Now what's he doing there? That phrase we just read in verse 18 is calling out the inclination, the tendency or the slant or the leading of strong personalities in the church who are trying to lead the church their way. Basically, the pastor at Corinth, he got pushed aside. He was a weak personality. It was lame and led. That's why they couldn't deal with the issues they had. They put him in a place, he had to ask permission to do things. God help our soul. If our church ever gets to that place, I've got to ask for permission to do certain things. We're in trouble. The financial businessmen in, that, in, the, in the city of Corinth ran the church and as we'll see in chapter 4, they used their positions to put down the servants of God. In fact, they were putting down Paul, which is why Paul had to write chapter 4. The words of the philosophers, listen to this, the words of the philosophers, that was the wisdom of that world, was revered over the word of God. So here's what they would do. They'd have a meeting, they'd get around somewhere, 
And they would say, oh, that's, that's, all, that's just what Paul had to say. Let's see what Aristotle had to say. That's what they would do. Let's see what Plato had to say. Advanced degrees of learning and education were more of a criteria for doing the work of the Lord than the power of God and the filling of the Holy Spirit. That was the wisdom of that world. The wisdom of this world places more emphasis on financial strength than on spiritual strength. The wisdom of this world is attracting a crowd instead of building a church. The wisdom of this world says less church, not more church. The wisdom of this world said it is foolish to have faith in God. It says we must have faith in our bank account. The wisdom of this world does not want to do what is biblical. It wants to do what is popular. The wisdom of this world does not want to follow proper authority. It is every man doing what is right in his own eyes. That goes back to the book of Judges. So what does it mean to become a fool? Very simply this. Trust God's word and God's way. God, God won't do you wrong. Hey, look. Look at the book of Acts. I love preaching the book of Acts. They didn't have a church manual. They didn't have a how to do it. They had the power of God and just did it. Amen? <laughs> they just had the power of God and just did it. So, Paul said in verse 19, would you look at that? The wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. So he says, <coughs> he just makes a point. He just says, he says, it's not that you should, there's a problem reading it. But he said, if you're going to run the church with that, God says it's foolishness. Now, I didn't say that. God said that. And so, to reinforce that, guess what Paul does? He does what a lot of people who are against the Word of God hate. He quotes, he backs up what he says with the Word of God. Amen. He was a biblical preacher. And so he said in verse 19, for it is written. You know where that's written at? Job 5.13. Job 5.13. He says, he taketh the wise in their own craftiness. And then he reinforces it again in verse 20. Now, for those of you trying to learn how to preach, you know what he's teaching us there? State the principle, but back it up with the Word of God. Underscore it, the Word of God. And you know what Paul did? He does like what I like to do, and our preachers like to do. He didn't give one verse, he gave two verses. He not only quoted Job 5.13, he quoted Psalms 94.11. Look what he says there in verse 20. In verse 20 he says, and again, the Lord knoweth the thoughts of the wise, that they are vain. So what's the wisdom, what, what's God saying here? God will ultimately demonstrate that the wisdom of this world is foolishness. And you know what God is doing here? He says, for the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God, for it is written, he taketh the wise their own craftiness. Now again, bear in mind, the context of this, come back again. There were some embedded inside the church who were trying to run the church the worldly way. And Paul said, whosoever is wise in this world, let him become a fool, that he may be wise. And he backs it with scripture. He says, he, the Lord taketh the wise in their own foolishness. He says, the thoughts of the wise are, are in vain. And so then, he goes a step further. He tells them that, he, he calls out their tendencies and that the wisdom of the world is foolishness. Then secondly, notice verse 21. This is important. 
He commands us to not let the wisdom of this world run our church. And secondly, he says, don't glory in men. Why do you say that? Because what I said earlier in the beginning part of chapter 3, there was man worship. People following Apollos, people following Paul, people following Peter. God gave the increase, amen? He said, we're not to glory in men. Now here's what Paul is going to do. I'm going to read this to you. I'm going to read this because I wrote this down and I didn't have it memorized. But I wrote this down as I was putting this together. Paul is putting down man worship, philosophical troublemakers, because that's what was going on here, philosophical troublemakers, wolves in sheep's clothing, scornful members who are attracting a following. I call them tribal leaders in the church. And personality preferences. That was the wisdom of this world. Well, preacher, if you, don't, if you don't do what I say, I've got a bunch of people who are following me, and we're going to split the church. You split the church, and God's going to split you. But he's saying we should not glory in men. Now, church member, you're not to glorify any man in church. You're not to glorify the pastor. You're not to glorify staff member. You're not to glorify deacon. You're not to glorify somebody else. You are, we are not into building a personality. Now, we're to honor people. Amen. We honored a few of our nurses the other night. For those who are wondering, what about everybody else? Hey, we're getting to them. It's just, we're just trying to do a few at a time so we don't lose anybody along the way. We're going to honor, we're going to acknowledge. we got 50 people in church. They're in that category. We're going to be acknowledged. So don't, don't get nervous there, okay? But we're not, we're not in demand worship. The flesh wants the glory in men. The flesh wants to follow the silver-tongued Apollos who waxes eloquent. Some of you are like that. You want to follow somebody who's got that eloquent tongue, you better follow the word of God before you follow the eloquent tongue. So the flesh wants to follow the hyper-grace movement that despises biblical standards. The flesh wants to follow the judgmental, legalistic, hyper-fundamental movement where they've got nothing but standards. But here's the problem with the, with the legalistic, hyper-fundamental movement. I'm for standards. But here's the problem. They have rules without relationships. That's just like parents. All you do is discipline your children and you don't have a relationship. Now, don't get me wrong. Some of you who are a little bit looser about that, you can say, oh, pastor said that we shouldn't discipline our children. I did not say that. In fact, if anything, err on the side, you need to discipline them a little bit more. I'm talking about rules without relationships. And so Paul said, we're not to worship, we're not to glory in man. Paul said, don't deceive yourself and live and in, 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 in abiding by the wisdom's world. And then thirdly, notice this. Paul says here, which is encouraging, he says, okay, we've got some bad practices in Corinth. We've got, we've got, we've got, a, we've got a divided church. It's split. There's schisms there where some are, are following me, and they're calling me, a, they're calling me a hyper-grace man, and I'm not hyper-grace. And some are following Peter, and they're calling him hyper-legalistic, and he wasn't hyper-legalistic. And some are following Apollos because they said, well, we like Apollos. He's a, he's a moderate fundamentalist, and there's no such thing as a moderate fundamentalist, okay? You're either a fundamentalist or you're not a fundamentalist. That's what it is, amen? Don't, don't go that line. Some of you young guys out there that are maybe watching from another church, there is no such thing as a moderate fundamentalist. That's not even biblical. That is an oxymoron right there. There's no such thing as a, a moderate fundamentalist. So what's Paul saying there? So now he just blew up, he just burst her bubble, amen? That's what preaching does, it bursts your bubble, amen? 
He just burst their bubble. You're not supposed to follow Paulos. You're not supposed to follow Paul. You're not supposed to follow Peter. You're not supposed to follow anybody. What are you supposed to do? Where am I going to get my wisdom from? Where am I going to get my knowledge to build the church? How are we going to get the church built? How are we going to do it? Look what Paul says. This is wonderful. This goes back to what I said earlier. He said in verse 21, for all things are yours. All things are yours. You know what he's saying there? We have a substantial sufficiency. Glory to God. Everything we need to do God's work, he's given it to us. I don't have money. You've got faith. I don't have a building. You can pray. I don't have a crowd. You've got the Holy Spirit. I don't know where to start. Get your Bible and preach. He said, all things are yours. Now about you. I'm excited about that. Everything we need for God's work, he's given to us. All things are yours. You have all of God's word. You have all of the Holy Spirit. You have all of prayer. You have all of the fullness of the Spirit of God. You have all his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. You have all the riches of his grace. You have all the exceeding abundance above all that we ask today. I don't know about you tonight, but we've got it all. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. And maybe there's some churches out there and preachers wondering, I don't have a building. I don't. No, but you have all things are yours, the Bible says there tonight. And you may be a thumb-sucking Christian out there who is very insecure about who you are and you don't think you can speak and you may not feel like you can serve. I'm going to tell you tonight, all things are yours. You're out there saying, well, I've tried knocking on doors and I've tried to build a bus route. It doesn't happen. I remind you tonight, all things are yours. You're saying tonight, well, you don't understand, Pastor. I don't have much of a personality. Well, that's, that's a problem. But all things are yours. Amen. You say, well, I don't have a sense of humor. That's a problem. All things are yours. You say, well, I, I like to be serious. You still all things are yours, and you can lighten up just a little bit there. Amen? I just say tonight, all things are yours. You say, I've got a wayward kid. That You may have a wayward kid. You can still serve God. You say, you don't understand my family background. We've got a background of sinners. I right, guess what? We all have a background of sinners, and guess what? All things are yours. How can I see God answer my prayers? All things are yours. How can the church function when we reassemble, but COVID-19 is not defeated? All things are yours. I'm encouraged tonight. All things are yours. Because, know ye not, you're the temple of God, and the Spirit of God dwelleth in you. That's a blessing tonight. How am I going to make it, Pastor, with a drop in income and unemployment? All things are yours. Pastor, I didn't get my stimulus check. All things are yours. Pastor, I did get my stimulus check. Tithe on it and give more. Amen. All things are ours. No, all things are yours. I'm saying tonight, we can rejoice. We have a substantial sufficiency. All things are yours. You don't have to rely on that wisdom, the worldly wisdom. All things are yours. Finally tonight, we see a sacred structure. A substantial sufficiency. Quickly tonight, would you notice we see a simple servant? Paul has burst her balloon. And he closed chapter 3, leading into chapter 4, is saying this. Notice verse 22. Whether Paul or Apollos, or Cephas, or the world, or life, or death, or things present, or things to come. He said, all are yours. 
He said, it doesn't matter what it is. And he says, and you are Christ, and Christ is God's. I mean, that's marvelous. In music, they say, you hit the highest note that's called a crescendo. That's the crescendo right there. And so now, Paul moves off of him. Stay with me now. Don't, don't turn it off now. Paul moves off of him, off of them, and he moves it to him and them. Now, Paul, as we get to chapter 4, he's been waiting for this moment. Because on the backside, there were Corinthians talking behind his back. And the household of Chloe came and told him about it. The very same people he wept over and led to Christ were the same group of people. It happens everywhere. It's biblical. It's Bible. The same group of people were undermining his ministry. They were, they were casting stones on his credibility, and they were undermining his authority. Now, he was their pastor. He loved on those people. You ought to read 2 Corinthians 6, the things he said about his heart for them. And this group of people, as, we, as I close tonight, that he just burst her bubble. And they're kind of reeling in their thoughts. Wow, I never knew that. I had, all, I had all this in Jesus Christ. This same group of people, he's now speaking to them because they were judgmental of his preaching, judgmental of his convictions, Judgmental of his leadership, and frankly, they were judgmental that he was God's servant to them. They, honestly, you read the book, this book here, 1 Corinthians, they didn't want him to write that letter. They didn't want that letter. Back in that day, they had to read the letter to the church. They read the whole letter to the church. And they didn't read it once. I mean, they read it over and over and over again. And then the preacher would get up and he'd preach about it. He'd preach that you'd have a stopping point where he'd preach on the doctrine there. And Paul always mentioned this. He comes back to them because some of them said he's a big shot. Some of them said, look at him, he's on an eagle trip. You say we're conceited, you're conceited, Paul. And as you read through 1 Corinthians, here's, what Paul, here's Paul's model. Here's Paul's what he would say. For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus our Lord, and we his servants for Christ's sake. So tonight, I want you to see as we close tonight, the simple servant. Quickly, notice verse 1. Paul had a humble realization. Now, I'm bringing this all together tonight as we close up. A humble realization. Look what he says in verse 1. Let a man so account of us. Okay, he said, now you're Christ, you're God's. He says, now, you're wondering about me. Let a man so account of us, and he uses two phrases, as of the ministers of Christ and stewards of the mystery of God. Now, when you see the word servant in the Bible, the New Testament, there's two Greek words. I don't have time to define them tonight. We'll do it another time. There's two Greek words that are used to define, predominantly, that are used to define servant. Diakonos, which we saw earlier in chapter 3. We get our word deacon from that. And doulos, which speaks about a bond slave. Both are wonderful words. But he doesn't use this word here. He doesn't use diakonos, and he doesn't use doulos. He uses a word, huperites. Now, when you see the word hooper, hooper is talking about means to come under something. Like, for instance, for instance um, the, word, the word submit in Ephesians 5 is the word hupatasso. 
And the word obey in Ephesians 5 and 1 Corinthians 3 is the word hupakuo. It means to come under the authority of someone else. Now, Paul uses the word hyperites, hupereites. And literally, he's defining himself as this. Are you with me tonight? He's defining himself as a rower in a ship's galley chained to that row, to that, to that oar with a bunch of other men and basically he's doing handwork. And basically he's rowing with his hands. It's referring to exertion, rowing in the same direction, being in the galley, you're not on the top side, you're in the belly of the ship. Nobody sees you, nobody hears you, nobody knows who you are. All, all is expected of you is you need to do your rowing and sink with everybody else and get that ship from destination A to destination B. Here's what he's saying there. I am nothing but an under rower. I am nothing but a worker with my hands. The same word is used about John. When John was called to minister to Paul and Barnabas in Acts 13, 5, it says, and he ministered to them. Basically, he served them with their hands. You know what he's saying? I'm basically nothing but a lowly servant. I'm nothing but a rower. I'm rowing in sync with everybody else. I'm just nobody. I'm just, I'm here to do hand work. I'm here to do hard work. I'm here to do heavenly work. I'm here to do holy work. I'm rowing with my hands. He pictures himself as being a rower. He's saying, he's saying, I'm just one of the team. He says, I'm doing my part by pulling my oar. I'm doing my part by pulling my weight. Hey, I wonder tonight, are you pulling your oar? Are you pulling your weight? Are you doing your part? How hard are you pushing the, uh, the oar? Listen, the functionality of those together, if they're not working together to move that oar, listen, they're not going anywhere. That ship is not going to move. And if one gets angry and upset, doesn't want to move it, then everybody else is stuck. Listen, you know what Paul said? I'm just an under rower in the galley of the bigger ship, and the bigger ship is, is, the, is the church of the living God, and Jesus is the admiral, and I'm just following whatever he tells me to do. I'm just rowing away. And listen, what he was saying there, he had a humble realization. I'm nothing but an under rower. You need to row your part. You need to do more working and less talking, less managing, and more perspiration. He uses a second word, the word steward. One of the best examples of steward is the study of the life of Joseph when he was in Egypt down in Genesis 39. A steward is a manager an overseer over someone else's household or affairs. In fact, the very word means manager over a house. That included his receipts and expenses. Today that meant he managed a checkbook. A steward was responsible even to the extent, if you read the book of Galatians, there's the words governors and tutors. Remember those words? It's the same word for steward. He had responsibility even down to the fact of the little children and making sure the children were trained and educated according to Jewish culture. They were homeschooled. He was a manager over the entire household, but he had no ownership. He was a manager over the entire household, but he had to give an account. That's why he said in verse 1, let a man so account of us. He was required to let those over him inspect what he was doing. Luke 12, 42. 
And the Lord said, Who then is that faithful and wise steward, whom his Lord shall make ruler over his household, to give them their portion of meat in due season? Now, we take this word steward, we apply it broadly in terms of stewardship. Good application, but not the interpretation. We are stewards. But Paul is saying here, look at verse 1. Let a man show account of us the context of everything he's saying, as of the ministers or under rowers of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. He's talking about the gospel. He's talking about the management, the oversight of the church. He said, I am a servant who worked with my hands and gets calluses on my hands and it hurts and my muscles are out of joint, and it hurts, but I'm also a steward of the, of the church of the living God, of the mysteries of Christ, of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's saying he was a steward of God's grace to make the manifold wisdom of God known. Hey, listen, the mysteries of God are seeing souls saved, seeing them baptized, making disciples, training leaders, seeing men called to preach, Helping grow, grow godly families and starting the process all over again. Reproducing yourselves there. That's the mysteries of God. That's what it is, purely and simple. And so Paul talks about, he speaks of here, he speaks of here his, his, his humble realization of what he was. Then secondly, notice verse 2 quickly. He speaks about his heavy responsibility. Then he said, moreover, he wasn't being lightly with the word steward. And the steward, stewardship applied to those who were in leadership position of the church at Corinth, but had, had, had reduced themselves to find the wisdom of men, which did not build the church of God. He said, moreover, it is required in stewards. And I want you to think with me about Joseph. When it says about Joseph that Potiphar knew not anything of what he had, but he trusted Joseph with everything. It's required... And stewards, that a man be found faithful. Faithful. Be in your place. Give an account. Give a return on investment, ROI. Be the right person in the right place. Be faithful. If you have to be told what to do after being around church for a while, that's not being faithful. You're just doing the bare minimum. Be faithful in your home. Be faithful in your devotions. Be faithful in your praying. Be faithful in church. Be consistent and persistent. Have a good name. Paul talked about the defiling of the temple of God. Why did that happen? They were not faithful. You've got to be faithful. Listen, the cure for all of our problems, number one, is we follow God. Number two, is we're faithful. Finally. He gives a hearty recommendation. Listen to me tonight. This is good because I have to close with this. This all comes together. I can't break this up in another message. This is real, real quick. Paul in verses 3 to 5. Listen, everyone listen tonight. Paul in verses 3 to 5 now deals with the issue of judgment. Because remember I said earlier, they were judging Paul. They were judging Paul. Now, there are three kinds of judgments Paul's addressing. Present judgment, his critics. Personal judgment, where he was looking introspectively inside of himself. Personal judgment, where he's looking inside of himself. 
present judgment, his critics were judging him. Prospective judgment, the judgment of God at a future point of time. So let me tell you in a gist what Paul is saying here. Are you with me tonight? Number one, look at verse three. Number one, don't let people who are judgmental of you make you feel defeated and down. Don't let people who are judgmental of you make you feel defeated and down. Now I'm going to say this tonight. Every church has this. Some are very diplomatic with their words, and some basically are like a, like a chainsaw. They just cut right through you. And the ones who are like a chainsaw and cut right through you have no grace. And they make you feel like a piece of dirt. And Paul is saying here, don't let people or judgmental of you make you feel defeated and down. Look what he says. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judging. I love that. Man, that helped me out a lot this week. You know what Paul said? Okay. My critics here that I just burst their balloon in the previous verses have ripped me to shreds before I, before I wrote these letters. He said, you know what? It's just a small thing to me. It's just a small thing. You know what? That's the measure of a big Christian right there. That's the measure of a good Christian, a godly Christian. What your words are, they're just a small thing to me. You know what? A lot of us who've been around the faith for a long time, we need to get to that level. Because you know what? You get, you get perturbed if I rebuke you. You get perturbed if somebody else tells you something. Or if I wait and I drop a bomb on you because I've waited five years, 10 years, 15 years, and I said, okay, enough's enough. I've been very patient with you. Here's what, you know what? And then, and then you get upset, and then you say, well, I'm going to leave the church. You know what? Why don't you grow up and be a big Christian and just say, you know, thank God somebody loved me enough to tell me what was wrong. And Paul's saying, what? You know, you told me everything. I've heard it. He said, it's a small thing to me. It's a small thing to you. That's what he's saying there. It's a very small thing that I should be judging you. Or of man's judgment. He says, I don't, he says, you know, it's a small thing to me. Don't have the attitude. I don't care what people say. You know what he said here? It's a small thing. What you have to say or what other people have to say, it's a small thing to me. Now let me tell you this tonight before I go on the second thing, before we close. Don't let judgmental people tear you up. You ought to have Paul's attitude, and when you go to bed tonight, you should not be seething and angry and upset, and you toss and turn and lose sleep on the night. You can say like the Apostle Paul, because remember now, he just humbled himself. He had a humble realization. He's a steward and under rower. He knew exactly where he was. He said, by the grace of God, I know what I am. He said, you know what? It's just a small thing to me. Don't let judgmental people ruin your life, ruin your day, pick up the pieces and go on and serve Jesus Christ. Too many judgmental people hold on to pet peeves and historical junk, which are wood, hay, and stubble that are going to burn at the judgment seat of Christ. Second, look at verse 3 again. Be careful of being too critical of yourself. Number one, number one, we're building the work of God. Consider it a small thing of those who judge you. Number two, be careful of being too introspective and too critical of yourself. We all are. Here's what he said. For I judge not my own self. Now there's some wisdom to that. Let me tell you what he's not saying. He's not saying... I should not judge my own sins. Because in 1 Corinthians 11, as he talks about the Lord's table, we must judge our own sins. The first thing you need to do is you need to judge yourself every single day. 
What he's saying here is I'm not going to be my own critic. I'm not going to be such a critic of myself that I'm going to tear myself apart. Look what he says here. For I judge not my own self, and for I know nothing by myself. You know what he's saying there? You can toss and turn and gyrate in your sleep and think of all the things that went wrong. You know what basically he's saying there? If I'm not very careful, if I'm too judgmental of myself, if I'm overcritical about myself or introspective about it, you know what he's saying there? I've given the devil an opportunity to get a foothold in my life, and the devil starts putting all these crazy things in my mind. Can I give you an example of that? Elijah. Elijah. That's what happened to Elijah. That's why he got into depression. He said, I want to die. He went and hid himself up in a cave. You can't hide from God. You know another person did that? Barzillai. I just wrote a devotion. You'll see coming up. Barzillai. Listen, Barzillai brought all these goods to David when he was in need, when he was out in the wilderness. Brought him bedding and food, things like that, at great risk to his own, health, to his own life. And Barzillai was 80 years old. When David was going back to the kingdom, Barzillai came with him. He said, King, he says, I'm going to see you all the way to there, and I'm going back. He said, wait a minute. Why don't you come with me? And he said, I will feed you at my table. Now listen, when a king invites you to come to the table, that's a command. It is not to be disobeyed. He said, I want you to let me feed you. You know what he's telling him? I'm going to give you all the riches of the kingdom. I'm going to give you all the riches of glory. You know what Barzillai said? Uh, you know what? I'm too old. I can't hear singing anymore. I can't hear, it doesn't make sense to me. I can't taste things as well. I mean, read it in 2 Samuel 19. He said, I, I've got old age. I've got all these problems. I've got the, he said, I'm just going to go home and be old. He says, take Chim Ham. Take my servant, Chim Lindham. You know what he did? He just, he just said no to the king. And that's what happens to you. If you're too introspective and too critical of yourself, you're going to turn away opportunities and you're going to miss the opportunity that God wants to give you because you let your depression and your discouragement and your negative thinking pull you down. That's what he's saying here. Thirdly, notice verse 5, we're done. God is the righteous judge, praise the Lord. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? God is the righteous judge who will reveal what's what. Therefore judge nothing before the time comes, before the time until the Lord comes, who both will bring to light the hidden things of darkness and will make manifest the counsels of the heart, and then shall every man have praise of God. Here's what he's saying. Judge nothing before the time, so stop judging. Stop judging. Get the beam out of your own eye. The Lord will bring to light the hidden things of darkness and the counsels of the heart. Then shall every man have praise of God. So number one, we see the sacred structure. We're the temple of the living God. The Spirit of God lives in us. Number two, we have a substantial sufficiency. You don't have to build with man's wisdom. You have to rely on man's philosophy. All things are yours. I could have busted if, 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 all, if one million people who bought Rick Warren's book, The Purpose Driven Church, had read that passage of Scripture, that book would have never gotten around the world the way it did. Because all that is is man's wisdom. That's all it is. You put, a lot of you who bought that book, you put royalties in that man's pocket that made, him a, that made him independently wealthy, when if you just read the Word of God, you could have learned that you could do it. You can do what God wants you to do because all things are you. We have a substantial sufficiency. And we see a simple servant. Are you introspective? 
You're overly critical of yourself. You're beating yourself up all the time. Stop it. Be a faithful steward. People judging you have Paul's attitude. It's just a small thing. And for all of us, judge nothing before the time comes. Because God will bring to light the hidden things of darkness. I pray tonight, you'll go to bed and remember, all things are yours. Thank God tonight, he knows exactly what we need and how to make it work.